Now please turn in your Bibles to the prophecy of Habakkuk. So we pay one last visit to Habakkuk, come to chapter 2, and consider one of the most familiar phrases in all of Scripture as we do so. Our text is Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Habakkuk 2, 1 through 4. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And that is the reading of God's word. Let's pray and ask God to bless his word to us tonight. Fathers, we come to the Holy Scriptures and the ministry of the word. We pray that your spirit would be at work in us and that you'd be building us up and doing uh, that which you please, that which you desire, and accomplishing your purposes in us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, even you children know that if you take a pot of water and you put it on a stove and turn the burner on high, you know what will happen. Even some of the littlest among us know what happens when you do that, right? The water is going to come to a boil. It's inevitable. But we have this saying, at least in English, you know the old saying about a watched pot never boils? Um, that pot, the pot is going to boil, whether you watch it or not. It's just a matter of perspective, isn't it? You understand the expression. Uh, when, we're, when we're waiting for something eagerly, and we're so preoccupied with waiting for that thing that we, are not, we don't have our mind on anything else, that, we're, we're, that which we're anticipating just seems to take forever. So it's a matter of perspective, and it's a matter of patience. And it's kind of what this text is about. The narrative, the overall narrative of the book of Habakkuk centers around the prophet's frustration, we might say, or his, his confusion, his grief, even. Uh, Habakkuk is dismayed that God would judge his wicked people, but he'd do so using another people that are even more wicked than God's people. Habakkuk just can't get it. He doesn't understand why God would do that. But really the message of of the whole book, in a sense, but the gospel message of this text that we're looking at tonight is that at the appointed time, the wicked will be destroyed, but those who have faith in Christ will live. At the appointed time, 
the wicked will be destroyed, but those who have faith in Christ will live. We're going to see three things in this text this evening. We're going to consider uh, looking for the Lord's answer, and then waiting for the Lord's timing, and then finally living by the Lord's grace. So first of all, looking for the Lord's answer. That's what we find Habakkuk doing at the beginning of chapter 2. That's what he says he's doing. And the language in verse 1 of chapter 2 evokes military images. It evokes images of uh, the defenses of a walled city because he speaks of uh, taking his stand at his watch post. The watch post is where a sentinel would stand and observe. He'd keep his eyes on the land surrounding the city. He'd be on the lookout in case enemies might approach. And then he makes reference to a tower. I will station myself on the tower. Uh, some of our English versions use the word rampart there, the idea being a, a fortification in a city wall where you'd have soldiers. And when he uses this imagery, when Habakkuk uses these words, it's, it indicates that he's watching vigilantly. He's watching steadfastly. I mentioned the Whiteners traveling. They'd, they'd gone up to, they bought a new car and they're driving it back home. And as they're, they're taking their time on their way home and they're, they're driving down the Blue Ridge Parkway and looking at all the beautiful scenery. That's not the kind of watching, that's not the kind of looking that Habakkuk's doing. Habakkuk has got his eyes riveted for something he's expecting. So, and this is figurative language. Habakkuk was a prophet. He wasn't a guard. He wasn't a soldier. So he's not talking about literally being on a watch post or a tower. But I think as, uh, as Calvin put it, uh, the tower of which he speaks is patience. Patience arising out of hope. Spiritual alertness is the disposition that Habakkuk is describing here. And what's he waiting for? He's waiting for God's answer to his prayers. And he's waiting expectantly. He's waiting in hope because Habakkuk believes that God will answer. He's confident of it. And prayers made in faith are prayers that believe God answers prayer. That was true of Habakkuk, and it's true of us. Prayer made in faith believes that God answers prayer. And so there's a quick point of application right here. In our prayers, we should watch expectantly for God's answer. Pray, and then watch, and expect that God is going to hear and answer your prayers. The Lord Jesus Christ himself and the New Testament writers encourage our prayers, and they encourage us in prayer. Christ offered assurance regarding our prayers. For instance, in Matthew 21, verse 22, these are the words of our Savior. He said, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And of course, we can't take that as a, as a blank check from God. Pray for anything, and God will obligate himself to give it to you. You understand that that's not what he's saying. But he's saying, if you pray in faith, God will give you your requests. And part, as you know, too, part of praying in faith is to pray the way Jesus did in the garden and say, not my will, but thine be done. 
and be ready to accept and, and be grateful for God's answer, whatever it may be. But you see how Jesus encourages, in our, encourages us in our prayers that way. Whatever you ask in prayer, if you believe, you'll receive it. Jesus also motivates us to pray steadfastly. And he told a whole parable for that very purpose. In Luke chapter 18, verse 1, it says, Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. It's so easy to lose heart in prayer, isn't it? We keep going to the Lord with the same requests, and it seems that he doesn't hear because we don't see the answer that we're hoping for. We don't, see, don't seem to see, in some cases, any answer. And so we lose heart, and Jesus says, don't. And he taught it parable to the effect that we ought to pray and not lose heart. And at the end of the, you know the prayer, it's the parable of the importunate uh, widow. She kept going to this judge, and the judge was unjust. He didn't want to mess with this. He wasn't really concerned about justice. But this woman kept coming to him and coming to him, and finally he says, I'm going to give her justice, or else she's just going to wear me out. And Jesus says, and you know, if an unjust judge will respond to a citizen in that way, how much more will God answer prayer? And so Jesus summarizes that parable by saying, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? The answer obviously being no. He will answer. And then James in chapter 5, speaks of the efficacy of prayer. Let's turn there together. Go with me to the book of James, chapter 5. And look at verse 14. And consider this encouragement for prayer. James 5, starting in verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Not power that comes from us, but power that the Lord unleashes using our prayers as a tool, as an instrument. And so there's tremendous encouragement for us in prayer from the Scriptures. And Habakkuk says now that he's going to wait for what the Lord will say to him. He's waiting for two things. First, he says he's going to wait for what the Lord will say to him. He's waiting for the Lord's response. And then flowing from that, he also says, I will await and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And that might be a little bit uh, clunky language. It might be a little bit uh, difficult to, to see what he's getting at here. I think um, the New American Standard and the New King James Version uh, are helpful. They, they render it a little bit differently. Uh, they render it more in the sense of, uh, I, will, I will wait to see what he will say to me and how I will reply when corrected. So he's waiting for God's answer, and he's also going to wait and contemplate how to answer when God answers, how to reply when God corrects him, or when God reproves him. And I think that's instructive for us, too, because faith 
assumes that God is right. Faith assumes that God knows what's best and that God is just. We don't correct him, but he may correct us. And when he does, we need to be ready to respond in, in submission and in obedience. And to, to sum this up then, as Habakkuk is looking for the Lord's answer, we see that Habakkuk is convinced, he's committed, and he's confident. Habakkuk is convinced that the Lord will answer him. And you can be convinced of the same thing. God will answer your prayers. Secondly, he's committed to be steadfast while he waits. And finally, he's confident in the wisdom of God, that God will answer, but not only will he answer, he'll answer wisely. He'll answer in his divine love and fatherly care. One commentator said, even though questioning the choice of this wicked nation to punish and judge God's own people, Habakkuk does not question that God has a reason. You see, that's what faith says. I don't know why God's doing this in my life right now, but I'm, I believe that he has a reason. He has a purpose for it. That's the, uh, that's the posture of faith. But then we see the theme of waiting for the Lord's timing. So God answers Habakkuk in verse 2. And when he does, he affirms Habakkuk, doesn't he? He affirms him in his looking and his anticipation, and he tells him to wait patiently and expectantly. Look with me at verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. So God gives Habakkuk instructions for while he's waiting. In a sense, he's still waiting. God's answering him here, but he's not really getting uh, that final answer that he's anticipating. The instructions that God gives uh, are as follows. He says, write the vision. You see that in verse 2? The Lord answered me, write the vision. Make it plain on tablets. Um, well, what vision is he talking about? Do we know? Well, basically, if you look back at the first chapter of Habakkuk uh, and verse 1, this is the way the whole book is introduced. It's described as the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So I think what that indicates is that much of what we read in the book of Habakkuk came to him by way of vision. And now God is saying, that vision I showed you, Habakkuk, write it down. And so that's what Habakkuk does. It's the oracle that he saw. And God commands him, make it plain. In other words, Habakkuk, you're my prophet. You write this down. You be clear. You be unambiguous and be faithful to me. Why? Because it's intended to be circulated, which is what I think uh, it means when it says, so he may run who reads it. This wasn't a private revelation that God gave to Habakkuk just to keep to himself. It was God's word to his people that Habakkuk was supposed to communicate, and presumably there would be heralds that would take this prophetic message to the people in other places. It wouldn't just stay local to where Habakkuk was, so that the person who received the message could then run with it and proclaim it from village to village, from city to city. Because it's intended to be circulated, it's intended to be communicated. And what does God say about his vision? How does he characterize it? He says the vision is sure, 
It hastens to the end in verse 3. I think we take the word end there the same way we do uh, in the first question of the shorter catechism. What is man's chief end? In other words, what's, what's man's goal? What's man's purpose? Why does he exist? And God is saying this vision will hasten to its end. It's going to accomplish what I desire. Because God has a set purpose. And this vision is going to bring that about. Secondly, not only is the vision sure, but it's reliable. He says it will not lie. I'm not deceiving you, Habakkuk, God is saying. And the vision that I showed you, it's true. And it's coming speedily. The vision hastens. That's the word we find at the end of verse 3. Now, there are times in Scripture where the Word of God seems to be telling us that something's going to happen really soon, and in some cases, it's referring to things that to this day haven't happened. And we find that frustrating, don't we? But I think that's um, kind of a general picture of, of the more of the broader reality that just our waiting often seems tedious. Waiting often seems slow to us. Like if you put that pot on the stove and put it on high and just stand there and watch the pot. When is this going to boil? But the thing is, when all is fulfilled, then we see from hindsight that the time was short. Another writer said, all history is in God's hand, moving inexorably toward the climactic day of the Lord. Faith in God compels one not to chafe at apparent delays because they are illusory. It seems like God is delaying, but he's not. From our perspective, our human perspective, our finite perspective, it seems as if God is delaying, but he's not. And we'll see. We'll see that in the end. Psalm 90, verse 10, says, The years of our life are 70, or if by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. Now, a lot of us, especially the younger we are, 70 years, 80 years seems like a long time. But for those of you who have hit those benchmarks, you will testify that it flies by. The same way... People tell young parents, oh, they grow up so fast. And you think, yeah, right. And then all of a sudden, they're heading off to college. And you think, where did the time go? And it's that way in God's dealings with us. And so he says, it will not delay the end of verse 3. In other words, it will happen precisely when God intends. So again, a, a word of application. Wait for the Lord Wait for him, which doesn't simply mean wait, it means trust. Trust in the Lord. And trusting in the Lord and waiting for the Lord specifically and especially does not imply idleness. Waiting on the Lord is not an idle activity. It means actively trusting and resting in him even when external circumstances seem unfavorable, even when the scene is foreboding, even when our conditions are, even, are frightening. Waiting on the Lord, trusting in Him, resting in Him. And as we wait, redeeming the time. Living and working for Him. 
because God will accomplish all his holy will. Not a word of his will fall to the ground. He declares the end from the beginning. Our God is the one who says, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purpose. Brothers and sisters, God's plans never fail. He will bring them all to pass. Now our text says the righteous will live by his faith. And you know what? A big part of faith is waiting for the Lord to do what he promises and to do it in his timing. Because at the appointed time, the wicked will be destroyed, but those who have faith in Christ will live. But that brings us to living by the Lord's grace because it says that well-known statement, the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's look at verse 4 again. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And what we have here in this verse is a contrast between two kinds of people, the same contrast that Pastor Mark referred to this morning in our Old Testament reading. Remember when he read from Psalm 1, and what's Psalm 1 about? It's about the righteous and it's about the wicked, and that's what verse 4 of Habakkuk 2 is about. You've got the wicked. That's what he's talking about when he says, Behold, his soul. The verses that we're specifically focusing on this, this evening don't have the antecedent uh, to his. But we refer back to chapter 1, where he's talking about the wicked. For instance, uh, chapter 1, verse 13. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? See, the frustration that Habakkuk felt, his confusion, he's bewildered. Also verse, um, verse 4, second half of verse 4, the wicked surround the righteous so justice goes forth perverted. So when he says in Verse 4 of our text, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. That's who he's talking about. The wicked that were already in view back in chapter 1. And what about the wicked? Well, you've got the, the... What we see here is God hasn't forgotten about him. He hasn't fallen off of God's radar. And what does it say about him? His soul is puffed up. In other words, uh, he's, he's proud... He's confident in himself. And it's talking about his soul again when it says, it is not upright within him. See, the problem with the wicked is an inner problem. His soul is puffed up. His soul is not upright. Inwardly, the wicked is crooked. But then consider the righteous. Notice the contrast. And there is one. But what is the basis of it? What makes the righteous differ from the wicked? What makes the righteous better, so to speak, than the wicked? And the answer is faith. Faith. The righteous shall live by his faith. Now that statement is quoted explicitly three times in the New Testament. The concept is, uh, is expressed even more times than that, but three times New Testament writers, twice from Paul, and if Paul wrote Hebrews, then all three times from Paul, uh, but um, first we have Romans 1.17. 
And in Romans 1.17, Paul's introducing the, the whole concept of the gospel. And he introduces it using Habakkuk 2.4. And he says, he speaks of a righteousness, not that we muster up, not a righteousness that we achieve, but a righteousness from God, a righteousness, a righteousness that we acquire and that's credited to us by grace through faith. And then Paul cites Habakkuk again in Galatians, the third chapter, verse 11. And there, what he's focusing on is the fact that no one is justified by works of the law. No one ever can be, no one ever will be. The only way to acquire justification, the only way to be justified in God's sight is by faith. And then in chapter 10 of Hebrews, there the emphasis is on faith as the means of perseverance. Not that life um, exclusively, not specifically or only the life that comes through justification, but that living that we live out after we've been justified, after we've been adopted, after we've been transformed by the renewing grace of God. Uh, Hebrews 10.38 emphasizes faith as the means of perseverance, continuing to the end. And so if you take those three verses and what they say, uh, using Habakkuk 2.4, we find that the New Testament doctrine is that faith brings us into right relationship with God through Christ, and it keeps us in that right relationship. And there's a very important implication here as well, because if the Scripture says that the righteous shall live by faith, the, the implication, the inescapable implication, is that the wicked will not live. Because, as I said at the beginning, the, at the appointed time, the wicked will be destroyed. But those who have faith in Christ will live. And we look around at what's going on in the world. We look around at what's going on in Port Royal and in Beaufort and at other places in South Carolina. Things that are going on in our country today and other places in the world. And we can become so easily discouraged because wickedness seems to be abounding. And we feel like we're on the losing end of things sometimes. Things seem so hopeless. But listen to Psalm 92, verse 7. Though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. God assures us of that. The water in that pot is going to boil. It's inevitable. And so again, as Pastor Mark stated this morning, there are fundamentally two kinds of people in the world. The same two that he mentioned this morning, I'll describe them in just a slightly different way. Fundamentally two kinds of people in the world, those who will die because of their pride and unrighteousness and those who will live because of righteousness. And it's, a not, it's not a righteousness that anyone can achieve through their own works, through their own merit, through their own personal goodness. The, the reason Scripture says the righteous shall live by his faith is because his righteousness is received as a gift 
that he accepts by faith. So the righteous shall live by faith, and that faith, the faith of the righteous, true saving faith, has an object. And the object of saving faith, true faith, faith that gives life, is the Lord Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no one else. Saving, life-giving faith is not a general or ambiguous faith. You know, and if you've had conversations with people about faith, and you try to share Christ with someone, they may try to, um, to stiff-arm you by saying, well, you know, I'm, I have faith. They'll try to assure you, I'm okay, I have faith. Okay, great, you have faith. But what's your faith in? What do you believe? In whom do you believe? These are all important questions. Because for a person to live and to stand in the day of judgment, they have to have faith in, the, in a true Savior who taught a true and exclusive gospel. Jesus said, No one comes to the Father except by me. There's, there's no salvation in any other religious figure. There's no salvation in any other religious system. No other kind of belief. There's only faith in Christ. And those who have faith in Christ will live. <clears throat> and when Christians come to the Lord's table, they're confessing, even as they eat the bread and drink the cup, they're confessing, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and the Savior of sinners, and I receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. So as we come to the table now, that's what we're going to be confessing. That's what we're going to be preaching to one another and what we'll be proclaiming to all who see. So let's ask God who destroys the wicked but saves those who have faith in Christ to bless us as we approach the table. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending a Savior, a true Savior, who preached a true gospel, for giving us ears to hear that gospel. Now as we express it and partake of the means of grace in this sacrament, we ask you to be in our midst and help us to feed upon Christ by faith. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.